Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome. How are you folks? Thank you so much for tuning in to the Paul Leslie Hour. On this episode, I have an interview that was recorded a few years back for the radio. And I am bringing it out today because... Abraham Laboreal is 73 years old. For a lot of you who are big fans of music, Abraham Laboreal is a name you recognize. He played on an unprecedented more than 4,000 recordings and soundtracks. How about that? Guitar Player Magazine said that he was the most widely used bassist of our time. And he is the father of another person that I interviewed, the drummer Abe Laboreal Jr. He has been called again and again one of the greatest bass players of all time. And the number of sessions, again, it's really astonishing. But a lot of you know him from the group's friendship and koinonia. We get into a lot of things on this interview. We talk about his time touring with Johnny Mathis, his work with Henry Mancini, his work with Michel Legrand. Abraham Laboreal is a very nice man, and I want to wish him a happy 73rd birthday. Let me know what you think of the interview, and please check out some of his solo recordings and some of the stuff he did with Koinonia and Friendship. I think you'll really enjoy his music. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with great pleasure we welcome one of the most revered and respected bass players of all time, the world-renowned Mr. Abraham Laboreal Sr., so first of all, thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview. It's a big honor. I'm glad to be invited to be part of this interview. Thank you so much to you and all the listeners. Our pleasure. My first question, who is Abraham Laboreal Sr.? <laughs> Abraham Laboreal Sr. is a Mexican-born and raised musician from Honduranian parents who came to the United States in 1968 to study at Berkeley College in Boston. And then since 1971 till now, I've been blessed to be making records as a bass player. And I've been invited to participate in more than 4,000 recording sessions to date. And all the doors are open, and I am a blessed musician. Amazing. What was life like growing up in Mexico City? It was very beautiful. My father moved to Mexico from Honduras in the middle 20s, 1920, and became a founder of the Actors Association, Musicians Association, Composers Association, the equivalent of the IATSE, technical, uh, technical people that worked in film. So he was a very crucial part of the fabric of the music and film industry in Mexico. Then he went back to Honduras in 1939, married my mom, brought her to Mexico, and all of our family was born and raised in Mexico. And so I was exposed to the bohemian life of Mexico because my father was blessed to participate in more than 200 films, either as a actor or as a singer-songwriter or as a composer. My brother, older brother, 
His name is Johnny Laboriel. He's one of the most respected singers and entertainers in Mexico. So my sister, Ella Laboriel, also is a very, very famous singer in Mexico. And we were all raised in an atmosphere of music. Eventually, I became a rhythm guitarist, staff member of Capitol Records. And then after that, I came to study in, in Boston. So music was 24 hours a day. What kind of music did you hear around the house? Well, every style, because my brother joined the first successful rock and roll band in Mexico, and the American publishing companies would send him music every week of every style for him to consider translating into Spanish and recording. So anything that he did not think was appropriate for his rock band, I would inherit. So I was raised between the ages of, from 10, from, from the time I turned 10 years old, I would listen to American music and I would play along with it on the turntable. Anything from Buck Owens and the Bookaroos to Lambert Hendricks and Ross and everything in between. So a tremendous variety of styles of music that I would just put on the 45s on the turntable and I would try my best to play along with it. So American music was always a very crucial part of my heart from a very early age. Although I was raised in Mexico with mariachi music and various kinds of Latin American music, my personal orientation was always towards American music. And then I moved to the United States in 68, and now I understand why I was raised with that inclination. You know. I understand that before you played the bass, that you were a classically trained guitarist and that you currently are playing the also the eight-string classical guitar. That's correct. So when you started with guitar, what got you interested in the bass? That my father's guitar style, you know, my father was my first teacher, and he had a very interesting way of playing the guitar, always combining the function of the bass with his thumb, with the rest of the fingers doing the accompaniment and the melodies. So from my very earliest memories, I could always understand the function of the bass in relationship to everything else. And, you know, when I do clinics, I explain to people that I divide all of music into the um and the papa, and bass players are responsible for playing the um, and everybody else is the papa. And I tell them that if you don't have the vocation to play the um, then pick a different instrument. So my father started to teach me to play um, papa, um, papa, um, papa, um, papa, um. And so... To make a long story short, when I became 23 years old, no, 24 years old in Boston, I discovered that I could play the electric bass and all the doors became wide open. My life really changed forever. A year later, uh, Gary Burton asked me to play with him on his first ECM record called The New Quartet, and that was my first official recording session in the United States. And then my second recording session in the same studio in Boston was with a singer-songwriter called Andy Pratt. And we did an album called Avenging Annie for CBS, Columbia Records. So right away, my, my career started with a very divergent styles of music, serious jazz and serious rock and roll. 
After that, I went on the road with Johnny Mathis, and I met Henry Mancini and Michel Legrand, and all of them hired me to go on the road with them. And then eventually in 1976, I moved to Los Angeles, and that became what what is now my full-time studio career. So tell us about the experience of traveling with Johnny Mathis. It was really beautiful because I had never done anything like that in my life. One of the great things about being a bass player is that I also explain to people in my clinics that all harmony, all the chords are named from the bass. So the bass has a stability. We are the ones that give names to all the chords. Whatever note we choose to play becomes the new name. And so when uh, I was with Mathis, I remember that there were a lot of minor seven chords that I would play a different bass note against it, and everybody turned around, very surprised that they were not hearing what they were used to, but with big smiles, <laughs> saying, man, what are you doing? We like that. We like that. And so uh, they kept encouraging me to just be myself, and that lasted for years. And I remember one time, uh, Johnny Matthew said to me, unfortunately, he said it just to me, he says, Abraham, I really want you to play real hard to force me to sing more. I want you to really uh, inspire me to sing. So I started to do that, and Matthias would look at me with a big smile, and then the, the music director came to me and he says, Abraham, what are you doing? You are using Johnny Matthews' voice as an excuse to play a bass solo. <laughs> 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 and I said, no, I'm doing what he asked me to do. So he immediately took me to, to Matthews to confront me. And, and thank God Johnny backed me up. He says, no, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't mention it to anybody, but I did ask Abe to play more so that he would inspire me to sing. It was a beautiful experience because then it showed me that as a bass player, not only I had the responsibility to protect and to accompany people, but that I also had the freedom to inspire them to not become a routine entertainer, but to really put his heart into every note. There are not many musicians that can say that they played with or knew Henry Mancini. So That's true. <laughs> what, I mean, what an, when, I, when I read that, I was just blown away. So tell us, first of all, how you met Henry Mancini, and second of all, what was he like? Well, he, I consider him a mentor. When I was traveling with, with Johnny Matthews, sometimes Henry and Johnny would share the stage, and Henry would use Johnny Matthews' rhythm section for, to play his arrangement. And Henry liked what I was doing to his music as a bass player. And he liked it so much that eventually he invited me to do a record in Los Angeles called Symphonic Soul, where he used a symphony orchestra to play soul music. And in that record, he featured me playing several solos. Henry very lovingly said to me that uh, he, there was nothing that he could do for me or for my career, but that he knew that musicians can do everything for one another. So that he wanted me to come to Los Angeles and be part of this record in which he featured me. And then he says, it's up to the musicians when they meet you to tell you what they can do for you. And in, in fact, that's what happened. When we recorded with Henry Mancini, 
There are some anecdotes that I can tell you that are very funny. We, we were recording, and I would play four bars, and then I would wait two bars, and then I would play four more bars, and then I would wait two more bars. And Henry says, what are you doing? I says, well, I am exchanging ideas with the click track. <laughs> and he started to laugh. He says, no, Abraham, nobody's going to hear the click track. That's just for the musicians to hear. So you have to keep playing. <laughs> and I did not have any experience, and I thought that the click track was part of the the actual music. And so I developed a very special relationship playing against quick tracks. In that recording session, he introduced me to Harvey Mason, to Joe Sample, to a great local guitarist. His name is Dennis Budimir. A percussionist named Emil Richards played and Lyric an Hour. And all of them encouraged me. You know, there was a keyboard player named Artie Kane, who's also a famous film composer. And they all encouraged me. They said, well, if you move to Los Angeles, you know, at the time it was 1975. They said, if you move to Los Angeles, there is enough work for another bass player. So if you come here, you should be able to find work. So I was not able to move until a year later when my, my wife had finally completed her medical training. She's a pediatrician. And in 1976, when we arrived to Los Angeles, Harvey Mason was working with Louis Johnson. So he did not need me. Joe Sample was working with Pops Popwell, so he did not need me. Louis Richard Hour was working working with Anthony Jackson, so he did not need me. And everybody else had Chuck Rainey and Ray Brown Jr. And so they said to me, Well, you know, a year ago we told you that there was room for another bass player, but now we all have bass players that we are very happy with. So, you know, good luck and see what happens. And it took about two years before uh, all the doors became open, and, and since then I've been recording almost every day of my life. Amazing. Our special guest is Mr. Abraham Laboreal Sr., the renowned bass player. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your time in Boston where you got the Bachelor of Music degree. What was the most important thing you learned? The most important thing I learned from the teachers in Berkeley was about persistence, about determination. What I consider the most important advice was that they said to me that versatility was very important. They said, if you become a specialist and your specialty falls out of fashion, you're going to be out of work. But if you're versatile, then you will always find something to do for somebody somewhere. And in fact, that's, that's what's been happening. I think that when people look at the the kind of work that I've done through the years, there is a tremendous amount of versatility because I've done film work, I've done classical work, I've done jazz, rock, pop, Latin, Christian music, live work, etc., etc., etc. And so, thank God, the, the people that hire me don't feel that, that they have to be limited to writing specific style or specific approach for me. And that way, when disco was popular, I was working. When disco became not popular, I still was working. The advice really served you well. <laughs> that was a powerful advice. I'm so, so grateful. And I also have to confess, because I was coming straight from Mexico, and I was not comfortable with the English language. I spent a lot of time in tears, not understanding, mis misunderstanding homework. The musicians would laugh every time I would present my, my homeworks because 
the teachers would mark it all with red ink and says, you know, this is unplayable. What were you thinking? And then some of the musicians will say to me, have you considered plumbing? And then the teachers, when they saw how, how distressed I was, they really very lovingly and very patiently explained to me that music is more than just what they were trying to teach me, that I was valid, that the way I related to music and the way I thought about music was valid, and that I just needed to keep on going. And then they gave me the famous American expression, if you cannot go over, go under, and if you cannot go under, go around, and if you cannot go around, go through. So after four years of real struggle, I got my degree as a composer, and I've been able to, to function and work in every context. Very inspiring. In researching your musical history and your catalog, I've been listening to Koinonia. Yeah. And I understand that wasn't your first band. When you were when you were younger, you had a band, Los Travios, Travesos? Traviesos. Traviesos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you've been doing a lot of research. Thank you so much, Paul. Oh, it's it's been fascinating. Really, just fascinating. So tell us about Quinonia, and what did you all hope to accomplish? And a favorite memory, maybe, from that time. Well, the word Quinonia is a Greek word that means community, communication and communion. And it's a word that is used in the New Testament to express when congregations would come together that they had something in common that they wanted to communicate and that they shared. So the word for coin comes from that word, a currency that communities use to exchange goods. And so in talking with the different musicians that were part of Koinonia, I discovered that everybody had a genuine passion for using their love of music to communicate with one another and with the audiences. And that's where the name came from. And so we started to perform in a nightclub in Los Angeles called The Baked Potato once a week. And we would just play each other's songs and ask the audience to participate. And some ways of how it lasted for 10 years in its original form with Cusco Armario, Alex Acuna, Harlan Rogers on keyboards, Hadley Hawkins on guitar, and Bill Maxwell on drums. And the best record that we did was produced by uh, Greg Matheson, amazing keyboard player producer. And nowadays, we have a new band called Open Hands that features Cusco Armario on woodwinds, Bill Maxwell on drums, Greg Matheson on keyboards, and myself. And we are hoping with that band make it into the most important aspect of our musical expression of these days because it's also instrumental music and, and we have the doors open both in the jazz festivals and in the Christian church environment. And the beautiful thing is that with this band we can play the same material in both contexts and the audience really feels welcome, included. They don't feel uh, that they are uh, being proselytized or uh, excluded, or uh, jive. And so that that's something that we learned to do with Koinonia. Koinonia lasted in that original form 10 years, and then uh, four more years with a singer named Lou Pardini. And then by then, we had, let me see, we had different guitarists that did the last few years with us, including Mike Landau, you know, Mike Miller, Bob Nuanes. And the first guitarist in the band was Dean Parks, 
And then after two years, he left, and, and it became just the six of us with Hadley, Harlan, Bill, Justo, and myself, Alex, and myself. And uh, to this day, a lot of the hip-hop artists and gospel artists of, of all over the world and many jazz musicians keep writing to us, telling us how much Koinonia still blesses them and how much they've been influenced by their music. That's incredible to be an inspiration to people after after all these years. So let me ask you, who were your inspirations? For sure, Ray Brown was one of them because I would listen to Oscar Peterson's trio a lot. Then I listened to Scott LaFaro with Bill Evans. In those days, as a child in Mexico, my, my brother kept getting off this American music with the most amazing jazz musicians. So all of that influenced me, and I would listen to a lot of upright players, you know, Wilbur Ware and Oscar Pettiford. I went to school with George Mraz, who has become my all-time favorite upright player. So I was influenced a lot by upright players. Then when, when the Motown craziness started, and I heard James Jamerson play, I was made to love her with Stevie Wonder. I had never heard a bass line that was so powerful in my life, and that just marked my life forever. Even though I was functioning as a rhythm guitarist, listening to that bass line completely uh, transformed my life. Well, my father says that when I was two years old, he remembers my uh, standing in front of the radio and conducting, and he knew that I had never seen anybody conduct. So he says that uh, he could tell that I was musically oriented. I really have a deep love, and I'm very passionate about music. If you look at many of the projects that you've worked on over the years, so much of it is Christian music. Uh-huh. What made you want to get into that style of music? Well, in October 11 of 1977, I officially became what they call born-again Christian. As I said, from the fact that American... It's incredible how American music can really influence, or has influenced the entire planet, because I love world music, you know, and, and when I travel and I hear the music that different communities are making all over the world, it is undeniable how powerful the influence of American music is all over the world. So when I started to listen to Clara Ward and Shirley Caesar and things like that when I was little in Mexico, Mahalia Jackson, dear Lord, all of that had a very, very strong, it left a, a strong mark in my heart and in my spirit. At the time, I was Catholic, and I was a devout Catholic. I was an altar boy between the ages of 9 and 21 when I left Mexico with the Jesuit priests. Then, in October 11, 1977, I gave my heart to the Lord, and I became born again. And uh, Bill Maxwell, the drummer, is the musician that taught me how to read the Bible. And so he introduced me to Andre Crouch, that he, that he was producing, and to the Winans that he was producing, and Helen Baylor. Keith Green, in those days, Bill Maxwell would do about maybe eight Christian albums a year, and whenever possible, he would hire me to, to be the sideman. And so uh, not only was it a musical expression, but it was an expression of what, what's deeply in my heart. And little by little, I learned that whenever I put my hands on the instrument, whether it is Christian music or not, that it is an opportunity to make real music from the deepest part of my heart. So no matter who hires me or who I work for, they know that I'm going to play with my whole heart and I'm going to give them my, my very best because 
I personally do believe that when you give yourself completely without any uh, reservations, that people know that, that what they are receiving is genuine and that it comes from a pure heart and that is there for them to use as they please. And as a professional musician, I believe that's my calling. Christian music taught me how to function that way. And I know that when I met Henry Mancini at the very beginning of my career or the, my first recording session with, uh, with Gary Burton, those were already things that the Lord had instilled in me, but that I was not aware that it was the Lord who did it until I officially became what they call born again. What does God mean to you? Well, when I became born again, I, I was set free from the burden of being creative. Because for a long time, I felt that creativity was my responsibility, and I would be insecure as to whether I was going to be able to do it. And then when I gave my heart to the Lord, suddenly I discovered that He is the one that is creative, and that we are just the the tools or the instruments that He uses to transmit His creativity. And so then I learned that my responsibility was to spend as much time as possible praying to be a vessel that is in good shape to transmit whatever the world wants to transmit. And so God, more than anything else, means the willingness to spend time in prayer, realizing that when I play my instrument, it's a form of prayer, that when I run into anybody in the street and greet them, that that's a form of, of saying, you know, I acknowledge you as a valid part of uh, of the universe, and I'm willing to give you whatever I have to give, which is my love, and, uh, and to trust that when they say that when good things, you know, when bad things happen to good people, that that does not deny the possibility that the people that are misbehaving are still using the gift of God because breath comes from Him. The ability to think comes from Him. The ability to act comes from Him. And so... Thank God that's why there is room for repentance. Hmm. God means literally everything that is good and important to me. Well, thank you so much for your openness with that, that answer. Thank you, Paul. It's, it's really with love. I think it's important for people to know that God is not impressed by anything that we accomplish or even by our despair. That all he's looking for is people who are ordinary people that have hearts that are willing to do what he commands, and that whenever that time comes for any of us, some of us it comes early, for some of us it comes later in life, but as long as that moment comes, the Lord himself says that it is all worth it if only one person in this whole planet chooses out of their own will to receive and to return the love that they've been shown. And I think that's why we play music. What is it that you like about music? If you could put it into words. The freedom. Music allows me an open door to enter into a freedom that nothing else can do. Because, you know, everybody says that music is a universal language. So with our band Open Hands, we've been able to experience sometimes the willingness of the audience to look at each other while we are performing and to sing to one another and acknowledge each other as valid human beings while enjoying the performance. And so then they become performers for one another. And music is, I think, the only the only power on earth that can do that. 
because not only are we free when we make the music, but then the people that are listening become part of the music that we make. And we become part of their music. So then suddenly we find ourselves backing them up. It's great. And also, music, you know, my friend and brother, Houston Mario, says that he read somewhere that music is the science and the art of combining sounds and silence. He says some wise philosophers say that silence is golden. Musicians, when, when we have the courage, sometimes we just be silent with our instruments. We are making very, very special music. And you know, when being quiet and making music, making a sound, when vocals then become equally powerful expressions of your spirit, there's nothing else that can do that. I have a couple of questions that are from a bass player named Jim Mayer, who plays the bass with Jimmy Buffett. Excellent. He wanted to know, how do you see your role as a bassist in a band, whether it be with a vocalist in a pop song or an instrumental band? Well, I personally consider myself a servant, especially when people hire me or when they ask me to participate in their music. My first concern is, what do, what do you want? For me, what is the role that you want me to, to play in your music? By having a servant's heart, then you try to discover what is their vision and try to do that first. Then once you accomplish what they have in mind, then you can start making suggestions as to this passage can be approached this way or that passage can be approached that way. But from a very early age, I had the vocation of being an accompanist. And as I said before, you know, the bass role is to play the um, which is the foundation of music and is what gives name to all the chords. And as long as as a bass player, you keep track of that role and be very sensitive when you cross over into the role of the, the papa. Because sometimes if we just play the papa and the um is missing, there is no foundation that gives meaning to the papa. So instead of saying um papa, um papa, it becomes just papa, 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 and there is no the musicality is lost. And so, to say it in, in a few words, my role as a bass player, whether I'm accompanying or whether I am part of an instrumental band, is to just create a foundation from which everybody can function and enjoy their role. By the way, Chuck Rainey said to me a long time ago that bass players are the house for everybody else. And then one of my teachers in Berkeley said that again. He says, you as a bass player are the shelter and the foundation for where everybody else in the orchestra runs to find protection. And if you forget to function as a bass player, you are leaving everybody else homeless. I know you're a humble man, but the fact of the matter is you've been called the best bass player by a lot of people. So my question is, who do you think is the best, either alive or deceased, as far as the bass? <laughs> Well, that, that, that's a difficult question for me. And in general, when people ask me who's my bass, my favorite bass player, I always say it's Johann Sebastian Bach because when he wrote bass lines, the meaning of those bass lines in relationship to everything else that's going on is phenomenal. And rumor has it that he would always start also composing from the bass line. And then... I philosophically believe that uh, music is very elusive. Music visits musicians, and then sometimes it stays, sometimes it goes away and then comes back. 
So there are different passages that are really musical, and some musicians are able to make those passages last longer. And I pride myself in knowing when something really, really musical is taking place, and then whoever is being visited by music at that particular moment becomes my favorite musician for that particular moment. As I said before, I love John Patatucci and Victor Wooten, you know, Marcus Miller. There are so many, especially here in Los Angeles, so many of the top professional musicians. We are friends, and we really love each other. So, you know, there are certain moments when all of us really are making great, great music. And whenever those moments happen, I feel blessed that I am either participating or just aware that somebody else is making great music. A long time ago, I had the opportunity to meet and play for... He came to sit in with Jaco Pastorius, you know. Wow. And, and he was absolutely phenomenal because, in, you know, in those days I would have two bases on stage. So I plugged in the second base and, and he joined us. And the two of us just started to play back and forth. And it was truly a, a, a very beautiful experience because instead of showing our virtuosity, we both were just creating rhythmic interest and uh, providing a real solid foundation for the whole band to function. And it was really one of the most unforgettable moments in my life. I wondered if Jaco Pastorius was going to get a mention. <laughs> but the, <laughs> You played yeah. on 4,000 or more sessions, and just for all the people that are listening out there, some of those people include the likes of Larry Carlton, Al Jarreau, Elton John, Quincy Jones, Paul Simon, Ray Charles, Engelbert Humperdinck, Stevie Wonder, the list goes on and on. Who sticks out in your mind as a particularly memorable and pleasing experience? Wow. Those are difficult to, uh, to what do you call it, to, to point one over the other. I think that because I've done so much music, every so often I hear something either on the radio or something pops out in the music, in elevators or whatever, and then I realize it's me, and I am, I'm, I'm amazed as to how beautiful it is. <laughs> a long time ago, uh, we did a song with Elder Barge called Donna. Larry Carlton calls me and he says, man, I was driving and I heard this on the radio. And immediately I went to the record store and bought it instantly because I was so touched and I had no idea that it was you. <laughs> and I'm really impressed. And, and moments like that are very moving because I like it when people say to me, I did not realize that was you, which means that I did my role correctly, which is not by bringing attention to myself, but providing the proper foundation for the song and for the people that are being feature as the artist. The other day also I was driving and I stumbled upon my first recording session with Larry Carlton and that really moved me so much because that included Jeff Porcaro on drums and Greg Matheson on keyboards and I was very moved that, that all these years I've been blessed to be able to make really high caliber music. I think I had a conversation with, uh, with someone recently who says to me, Abraham, you need to understand that uh, you are the soundtrack of my life. <laughs> wow. And that that really uh, blew me away. When he started to explain that uh, so many songs that I recorded have been songs that are, have been important to him at different points in his 
life. And I never heard anybody articulate it quite that way. Whenever I relate to the music that I've been able to make, I feel really privileged that all of that becomes not only memories for me as an individual, but that other people have experienced my work and felt that at crucial moments in their lives is what helped them get through. And I remember one time we were doing an interview in Australia, and the interviewer says to me, well, Abraham, I guess you've really been blessed to work with everybody. I guess the only person that you've never worked with is Pavarotti. And I said, no, I have. With <laughs> Mancini and I <laughs> worked with Pavarotti. And they laughed. They said, okay, I guess you've worked with everybody. <laughs> Who do you want to play with that you have not yet? McCoy Tyner. <laughs> I absolutely adore his musicality and his ideas. And the one time in 1975 that I met him, I was living in Cleveland for my wife to do her internship. McCoy very much wanted to meet me, and I was just too overwhelmed by my admiration for him that I avoided him. <laughs> and then I, I haven't gone to contact him since, but I hope and pray someday to, to be able to, to approach him and see if there's a way for us to do something together. In doing research for this interview, there's two musicians that I was reading up on a lot that you've played with a lot, and that's Justo Amario and yes. Greg Matheson. So I was hoping you could tell us about them. Yes. Justo Amario is the first Spanish-speaking musician that I met when I moved to the United States. We hit it off. At the time, we were not officially Christians. We were really good friends. He gave me a lifetime quote. He says to me, you know, when I walk throughout the school in Boston, I hear all these people practicing a lot of virtuosic music and lines. And he says, my prayer is that I would learn to play one note with my whole heart. And that just stayed with me forever. Because uh, Justo has made it uh, his business to play one note with his whole heart and inspire the rest of us to do the same. Then. Greg Matheson is the first musician that I went to jam with when I moved to L.A. He opened his house and invited me to be part of the jam sessions. And then he would introduce me to a lot of people, including Al Jarreau, which then led to the possibility of me going on the road with Al Jarreau. And that started my full-time recording career when we came back from doing six weeks live recording in Europe. And also, Greg was so instrumental in my uh, learning how to navigate the music business here in Los Angeles and how to keep the doors open. I don't know how to put it. Music is more than just getting together with people and playing your instrument. But I think it has a lot to do with uh, relationships. The things that you do that are ordinary things on a daily basis become part of the way the music sounds. So I remember sometimes helping Greg with his Hyman V3 to load it in and out of his van. Or sometimes we needed to pick up his children to the different schools or, or sometimes help him prepare a meal. Or uh, And the same thing with Husto, so that our relationship uh, transcended just getting together with our instruments. And then the, the conversations that we would have, the long walks that we would take, the records that we would play for, for one another, encouraging each other to listen, all of that would permeate our musical style. So basically, these are the people that formed me. I love them so much. 
I know I'm asking a lot of questions, but I only have a few more. <laughs> you have passed on the gift of music to your sons, Mateo Laboreal and Abe Laboreal Jr. And yes. God willing, I'm going to be interviewing Abe Laboreal Jr. when he's here in Atlanta. So tell Beautiful. Us, yeah, so tell us about your musician's sons. What have your sons taught you? Well, one of the truly most beautiful statements that I've heard came from my wife when she said, the fact that both boys have chosen music is proof that you never use music as a way of hurting them. Because in most traditional families, the children choose to do something different from the parents because they think that the absence of their parents in their lives is due to the professional responsibility. And so I was very touched when she says to me, you know, the fact that both boys have chosen music, it is a testimony to you that they consider music a good thing and they don't associate it with being absent from you. They both are, I don't know how to put it, they love music so much and and relate to it in such a natural way. When Abe Jr. was seven years old, maybe eight, we went to his grammar school to do a show and tell. So we brought his little drum set and an amp for me, and we played for the for his classroom. And at the end, the teachers said to me, "You know, normally whenever parent and child do any activity together, the child is constantly looking to the parent for approval or for direction. You guys did not look at each other once." <laughs> And we just played and played and played and played, and it was a lot of fun. And they said, you know, we don't understand that. And I said, well, because it's it's very natural, and what we're doing is just sharing with you guys the love that we have for each other and for the music. And then uh, Mateo has been given a very special gift. He's a producer, composer, arranger. And when he was four years old, he was playing... He was laying down on the ground with a, a guitar, and he was not a guitarist at the time, but he, he somewhere somehow found on the first string of the guitar, on the second fret, it's an F sharp, you know? And Larry Carlton, he was playing a Larry Carlton record that is on E minor, and every time the E minor would come, Matteo would play the F sharp, and then he would wait eight bars, and then he would play the F sharp again when the E minor came. All three of us, my wife, Abe Jr., and me, were stunned, and our jaws were dropping. And he he was just laying on the ground with his eyes closed and played the F-sharp every so often at the appropriate time. So he opens his eyes and looks at us, and he says, what, 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 what? And we says, Mateo, what are you doing? It's beautiful. When did you learn to do this? And then he says to us, well... I've been a musician all my life. I just didn't want anybody to know. <laughs> <laughs> so I've learned from both of them that music is really as natural as breathing and that it needs to be approached with that sense of, uh, because we are musicians, we are not special, but we are just people like everybody else that happens to love music and be blessed to be allowed to do what you love on a daily basis. Wow, that's very well put. When someone goes to hear you play, or when they listen to one of the recordings that you've made, what do you hope that the listener gets out of the experience? Well, I'm hoping that objectively that they'll get out of, of that, the fact that uh, music can only happen when musicians 
get together with a genuine sense of harmony and respect and love. And then subjectively, I hope that they discover what I love about music, that real music happens when musicians are visited by music. And that experience is something that, that goes beyond description. You cannot tell what's going on. You cannot tell who's playing. You don't even know what instrument you're hearing or what song it is. All you know is that something just overwhelms you and makes you feel really good. And that's what I hope that people will get out of listening to my work with other people, that they will just be allowed to forget about themselves and just have a, a genuine, overwhelming feeling of goodness all over. It sounds like you're somebody that will never retire with an answer like that. <laughs> so what is in the future of Abraham Laboreal Sr.? Well, right now, uh, the most my personal dream is for Open Hands to become our main band. And if your listeners want to visit, it is called openhandsmusic.net. And then they'll be able to find us and, do, and check it out. I've been invited to go to Japan to do the Japan Jazz Festival, backing up a drummer named Akira Jimbo. Then I've been invited to go to Peru to do uh, the anniversary of a band, a Peruvian band called Peru Jazz, and I'm going to be the guest bass player. In the meantime, you know, we're going to continue to do record work of all kinds here in Los Angeles, a little bit of uh, jingles and film work and some live work. August the 20th, we are starting a, a new group of local musicians that uh, include the, the, the group leader is a French horn player. His name is Richard Todd, and he's going to have also a bass player, a phenomenal bass player named Mike Valerio. So there's going to be two bass players, Alex Acuna on drums and percussion, Frank Morocco on accordion, Charlie Bicharat on violin, so it's going to be a very, very unusual orchestration and combination of musicians that just love to improvise. And then I've been performing about also once a month with uh, Emil Richards on percussion and vibes, Joe Porcaro on drums, and Mike Lang on keyboards at a nightclub called Charlie O's. And all of that just keeps the creativity flowing. And then from time to time, we visit the mission in Los Angeles with one of the with with my church, my pastor is Ralph Torres. I've been invited to do a praise and worship service in a place called Traverse City, Bay Point Church, and that's going to be also phenomenal with uh, Linda McCrary as the feature singer, Rene Ledesma, and John Langford, and I'm really looking forward to that. So it looks like all the whole year is spoken for, you know. Yeah. We just finished a, an educational DVD for drummers with a drummer named Carlos Skinfield and features Alex Acuna. And I met a brand new young musician from Mexico. His name is Emanuel Ortiz, keyboard player, music director for uh, Armando Manzanero, and a young Indonesian guitarist named Martin Kuawi. We're blessed. There was a time when I was doing four sessions a day. Now... I'm doing all this variety of stuff and keeps me busy, and I'm very grateful. I really appreciate that you are granting me this chance to have this interview and share my heart. Oh, the pleasure Thank is all more. mine. I have two final questions that I ask all of our guests before they go. 
First of all, thank you so much for the interview. There's one silly question and one serious. What is your all-time favorite meal? <laughs> well, my favorite meal growing up in Mexico was what's called picadillo, which is ground beef that my mom would make with her own formula. She would put raisins, potatoes, onions, and tomatoes. And I haven't had it since I'm a child. She never taught that recipe to my wife. <laughs> that sounds interesting. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. So the final question, this broadcast is going out all over the world. What would you like to say to the world? What would you like to say to all the people that are listening in? Well, I would like to share a verse of Scripture. I don't know exactly where in the Scripture it says, Test every spirit and hold on to that which is good. I think that the Lord really doesn't want us to be afraid, period, you know, because we have been given the gift of love and of power and the ability to discern with our minds. So now that people are so much into experimentation, the Bible says, test every spirit and hold on to that which is good. So my message for the whole world is that as they go on their daily lives, trying this and trying that to remember of all the different things that they try and experiment with, which ones leave a, a genuine fruit of goodness for themselves and for their loved ones, and to hold on to that, and to not be deceived, and to make music, to remember that whether they are musicians or not, when they choose to love each other, they are making music, and they are making great music, and they are living a legacy of beautiful sound in this planet. Mr. Laboreal, thank you so much for giving such an in-depth and wonderful interview. It has been a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope that one day I get to see you perform in person. Thank you so much, Paul. My love to you and to all of your listeners, and thank you for this opportunity. I'm glad that we were able to work it out. Okay, Paul, love to all of you. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things, improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.